This is the Growing Up Rock Podcast with your host, Stephen Michael. Now, crank it up. What's up, Growing Up Rock listeners? I am flying solo this week while my trusted co-host, Sonny Hollywood Pooney, is packing up the moving van and taking his talents back home to California. He will get squared away and be back next week. But in the meantime, as we prepare for the upcoming Monsters of Rock cruise, I wanted to bring you guys this great new interview I did with an up-and-coming killer rock band called Station from New York City. These guys came onto my radar roughly about two years ago when I heard about their performance at M3 Festival. The band consists of singer Patrick Kearney, guitarist Chris Lane, bassist Emil Asta, and drummer Tony Baptiste. These guys have been around basically since 2011, but just like most rock and roll these days, it takes time to get the word of mouth going, and you know how it is. Just like great music, though, the cream will always rise to the top, and Station is no exception to this rule. I talked with guitar player Chris Lane and singer Patrick Kearney about being a newer rock band and what it takes to record, market, tour, build a fan base, and just generally be in a rock band these days because rock and roll, well, it's kind of the alternative these days to music, which is sad to say. It's an interesting and informative discussion. I play some great tracks from a few of their albums. The band recently released album number three called Stained Glass in November. Just like the band's previous releases, it delivers a rock-solid dose of melodic, guitar-driven rock and roll with huge courses. I hope you guys will enjoy this interview, and we will catch you guys next week. See ya! Join me today from the band Station is Patrick Kearney and Chris Lane. How are you guys doing today? Hey, man. How are you? Doing well. Doing well. So you guys released Stain Glass in November of last year. Is that correct? Yes. Awesome. So we're going to get into that and a whole bunch of other stuff. Chris, you're self-taught on guitar. Do you remember the first solo you learned? To be honest with you, I didn't really learn any solos. I'm actually rather terrible at playing other people's music. The way I taught myself was actually just kind of figuring out what sounded good over songs I liked. So it was a lot of uh, listening to Journey and kind of hearing what Neil Sean would do and then kind of trying to figure out something similar to it. Yeah. As you progressed as a guitar player, did that give you more confidence as an overall player? Um... 
I wouldn't say confidence. It's just I'm very comfortable doing my own thing. So um, as time has gone on, different disciplines of music have come into my life that I've studied and, and tried to approach definitely. But uh, in terms of just doing my own thing on the guitar, I settle into it very well just because if you ever watch me play, I'm, I'm actually playing quite incorrectly. So it's, um, it's, a, it's kind of a unique take on it sometimes. It's <laughs> kind of funny about that, too, is that um, I've had other, uh, other guitar players come up to me, like, you know, we'll hang out after the show, and they'd say, like, you know your guitarist, like, doesn't use his pinky, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, yeah, yeah, we forgive him. <laughs> I think I've used it, like, three times maybe yeah. it, it comes out when needed so no strength in the pinky then <laughs> i mean it's just it's one of those things where it's like actually you know in the studio it's kind of a funny thing is that i will literally play things completely differently each time and it's because there's no set way in my head of kind of um holding down a different kind of fingering or or a different rudiment exercise so you know, it makes things frustrating if you want exact consistency, but it also adds to the quality of performances because if each take is unique, you can actually decide which you like better. Yeah. No, I, t I totally get that. Patrick, for you, what are your earliest memories of music? Like, how does one just all of a sudden end up a singer? Because it's different with guitar players and piano players. They gravitate towards an instrument and they pick that instrument up and start practicing. With a singer, your voice is your, your tool. So how did that all come about for you? So I've been singing my whole life. Like I... You know, there's a little kid. I was always singing around the house. I was singing along to like my parents' music when they were driving me around. Singing was always something that I just did. <laughs> like, if that makes sense, like it was just I was always the kid. I used to get in trouble in school because like I would sing at relatively inappropriate times. And you still do that. <laughs> I still do that, but I don't get in trouble with a teacher anymore. This is true. That's true. You have no ramification. You can't fail. <laughs> exactly. I have no recourse for inappropriate singing anymore. Exactly. Let me guess. You were the uh, YouTube kid in the baby uh, seat in the back seat that your parents were filming singing uh, whatever was on the radio. Oh, I'm sure. God. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God back in the day, like, you know, the video cam I would have had it been like one of those giant ones with a VHS tape, you know, <laughs> and not like a phone because God forbid it was a phone. But yeah, I was always that kind of kid. You know, I was singing choirs, I sang in church when I was a kid um, and, you know, throughout middle school and high school, too. I was always in the, you know, the musicals. So I was okay. always actively involved in singing. It was something I enjoyed and something I wanted to actively pursue and I took voice lessons starting in high school as well. You know, originally I, I kind of felt like I wanted to go into theater, but then I realized like, you know, I, I enjoy theater a lot. It's, you know, awesome, but I really just liked the singing part. I didn't really like everything else about theater and not nearly as passionate anyways. And I, I grew up with like loving rock music and listening to rock and, and getting into heavy metal and as far as like where I am now, a big chunk of that comes from this teacher that I had. Uh, his name is Rob Volpentesta, and he's with a band called Sacred Oath. And he's kind of the guy who first expanded my ability to sing the way that I sing, you know, hitting the high notes because mm -hmm. I would get super frustrated and be like, oh man, I'm a bit, because I used to sing bass when I was in choirs, mm -hmm. you know, I never could hit the high notes. And then, 
And then I, one day I literally, I was in a cover band in high school and uh, they wanted to play Paradise City. And I was, I came to him with, at a voice lesson. I was like, oh man, I'm really frustrated. These guys want me to hit sing Paradise City, but like it's so high and it sounds terrible. And his response was like, why? Let's work on it. You know, like let's get it to where it should be. And I was like, are you serious? And however many years here I am still doing it. <laughs> yeah. I think uh, last week when we featured Matter of Time, I think my co-host, he said, man, if Arnell ever wants to leave the band, uh, Journey can use this guy as their new singer. <laughs> Are there any musicians in either of your families? Yeah. Uh, my uh, my mom is a, an awesome pianist and I use, cause I took piano lessons when I was a kid and she's probably, um, the most musically inclined because she was like actually a musician. My dad never played an instrument growing up, but he was always a huge music fan. And then when he turned like 50, he decided that he wanted to learn how to play the bugle. <laughs> okay. And uh, so, and he actually got pretty good at it too. So it's, uh, you know, there, it was there. He just didn't cultivate it when he was a kid, you know? So I guess he's kind of a musician if you want to count the bugle as an instrument. <laughs> I think, I think we can count the bugle as an instrument. I think it's official. It's very specific. It's not like, oh, he plays trumpet and bugle. It's like he only plays bugle. <laughs> but you know what's what's so weird about hearing that, though, is that, like, you know, obviously knowing your father and your father's, like, taste in music, I don't know how he got to the bugle. Like, you know, Pat's dad is a huge Genesis fan. So, like, I don't know, the drums or, or I don't know, something <laughs> like that. Instead, he woke up one morning, he's like... The bugle is calling. The bugle is an <laughs> instrument. I guess the bugle is an instrument much like the kazoo is an instrument, right? Kind, yeah, yeah. I mean, flugelhorn, you know, you could do a Chuck Mangione song, I guess. I don't know. I'm a kick-ass kazoo player. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> She's moving 
So how did you guys end up meeting the two of you? Through a lot of frustration, it seems. We, uh, Pat and I have an interesting kind of story in terms of how we got together is because a lot of bands go through this auditioning process and, you know, I mean, keep in mind, Pat and I have been working together for close to a decade. Mm -hmm. So yeah. And without interruption. So like, it's one of those things where it's like, we really just met each other because Pat's band was, you know, kind of frustrating him and it was ending same thing with the band I was in. And we found each other via a classified ad. Mm-hmm. We met each other and it was, I always tell people it was like two of us like running slowly through the field is like <laughs> chariots of fire is playing because <laughs> it was one of those things where it's just like, I personally had not met someone like Pat who shared the influences, shared the vision, shared the dream, but also had kind of the goods to back it up. Right. So it was a very natural kind of like, all right, check. What's the next step? Find the rest of the band, you know? Yeah, it sounds like an idea for a video, by the way, the Fields of Gold thing. I can see that. Yeah, well, you know, (laughs) the next one. (laughs) I always use the imagery of a bridge for some reason. Like we're running towards each other on a bridge. Yeah, like like we're meeting in the middle of a bridge. Like I feel like whenever I tell that story, it's always like, oh, there's a bridge. I don't know why I gravitate towards the bridge and not a field. I feel like they both I don't know. They do. It's hard to find chemistry like that in two bandmates. And I mean, were you the guys that basically put the other two guys around you? I mean, is is Station basically your project and you added the other two? Because I mean, I've even no. seen I've even seen a couple of things where there's just a picture of the two of you. So is this a band or is this just the two of you? Oh, no, no, no we're absolutely a band. OK, yeah. I, I think it I think one Pat and I are just the best looking. Yeah, we are. (laughs) We're just we're just the two consistent guys in the sense of like, because like to be totally honest, you know, Emmy is our second bass player. You know what I mean? And and it's not like oh, we had like it was because our first bass player, who is also a member and friend of the band, you know, he decided he wanted to move on. But it wasn't because like oh, you know, he's just you know the other guy. He's the he's the two other guys in White Lion. You know, it wasn't like that. It was very much. You know, and we still are like very collectively a unit. We draw from each other. It's we all have roles in the band that need to be fulfilled. You know, I defer all kinds of expertise to the other guys. You know, I am a drummer actually. I, I was on drumline when I was a kid, so like I can communicate with Tony, our current drummer. But at the end of the day, I also like Tony's the drummer. Let Tony do his thing. Like I never really tell him like you need to do this because it's my vision or anything like that because it's not my vision it's the four of us it's all our vision so we're very equal in how we contribute what we do to station and have it be our own individual performances yeah there's a lot of room for everyone to be themselves and uh the thing that i was saying you know emmy is our second bassist and i believe tony's our third drummer and the truth is is that Yes, that is a case of a change of membership, but also there's a very much a period of time when Station was still trying to find its way in terms of what we wanted to do. And Emmy came in at the very beginning of that, and so did Tony. So, you know, we started differently, but we've been consistent like this for a very long time, and we've kind of grown into each other. So there's this tremendous sense of, like Pat said, you know, deferring to the others, but also kind of relying on it because we know that Tony's thinking on drums is the drummer's take in station and, you know, Emmy and bass and pan vocals, you know, like it's just that mutual respect that kind of drives us and the shared vision that kind of keeps us together. So 
it's a pretty unique environment because we don't have the relationship where one trumps all in a situation. We talk about everything, you know, like even in the recording situation, we're very, very, very comfortable with people, people ourselves critiquing each other's performance. You know, like Emmy's just involved. Pat's just as involved. Tony's just involved in my guitar solos as I am in the vocal. We're very collaborative. Well, it's funny that you mentioned that you were trying to find yourselves when you were going through, you know, the first couple of drummers and the first bass player and everything, because I started with the EP and I, I worked my way forward and went through the EP, went through the self-titled record, went through more than the moon, went through stained glass. And for me, I find it to be fairly consistent. Now, what I mean by that is it's definitely station all the way through. Like it doesn't sound like another band. Now, I can tell where the writing has gotten a little better over time and, you know, more tweaked here and there. But it is very much the same band, at least to my ears, you know? Thank you. That's the goal. (laughs) Yeah, we're very very cognizant of of what we are as a unit. And, you know, one of the big reasons I think it's kind of stayed the same in a lot of ways is because very, very forward is the lead vocal part and the guitar part. So, and then Pat and I have always been there. One of the things though, that has really, really taken shape, especially since the first album. And, you know, I mean, Pat, you tell me what you think, but I kind of view station as there's the first, everything leading up to the first album. Then there's the release of the first album. And I I see that as like two very different phases in the band because you know, at that point, that's where we actually started touring. We actually started being more open about, you know, we can do this, we can do that. Because when we made the first record, the reason there's 15 songs on it, and they're all kind of in the same genre, is because it's just a translation of our live set. And we weren't sure if we were ever going to be able to financially afford to record another record. So we pretty much said, how much music can we throw at this thing? You know, it's like, we, we kind of did think it was going to be our, well, we didn't think it was going to be our one and done, but we planned. We knew it could have the worst. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, in hindsight, as I guess, record producers at this point, you know, as artists, the album's too long. I would never have released some of those songs just in the sense of like, I don't think they belonged with them. Maybe something else, maybe took more time. But, you know, at the time, it was a very, very different mentality, a very, very different conversation. You know, now we kind of have the luxury of recording when we want and releasing art as we choose. Back then, it was it was way more of a struggle. And, you know, Pat and I spent many nights really, really contemplating what to do with this to make sure the band could go on because it's it's very it's very very taxing to make a record well you know it's interesting you say that because i absolutely happen to agree with you a hundred percent i look back and i don't my knowledge of your band is very limited as i said you guys came onto my radar a couple years ago i got this new record staying class and just listened to it enjoyed it and then worked my way backwards Uh, and so I don't know a ton about the band's history. I know what the bio says. The bio is very short, but you mentioned the 15 songs on the first record. I absolutely, I'm like, that's a lot of songs. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The other thing I notice is that with your songs, I would view this band as a power pop, pop, hard rock band, whatever 
little category you want to put on your band. That's what it is to me. It, it's in the same vein as a journey or a honeymoon suite or a night ranger or one of those bands where it's very melodic, very big courses, very driven guitar, all that stuff, great vocals. But in that context, your songs are fairly long. Like, I mean, you've got four and five minute songs, whereas for a power pop band, I view more as, you know, the the radio single 330, uh, 250, you know, in that vein. But mm-hmm. I mean, you've got right. songs that are six and a half minutes. You got uh, Angel, which is a six minute, 57 second song on stained glass. Well, you know, I mean, a big part of that definitely stems from the fact that we're really not creating music for anything but the creation of music at this point. You know, we're not trying to cater towards, you know, like back then playing a rock single on the radio. There was there's no there's no sense of this is what is needed to achieve that, because in, in modern times, there are so many other ways of getting music. Now, I think that you should let the song express itself, you know, and I think that also kind of, you know, what, what you're talking about in terms of the the genre We are so influenced by so many different things, you know, even between Pat and I, we're very, very, very different in terms of what we're probably listening to in our headphones. So we try to give the song the production that we feel makes the song the best, but we're really not of the mindset that anything really needs to adhere to a genre. And I think stained glass is the first step towards actually being able to do that. Because, um, you know, big difference between Stained Glass and the previous two records is that we made Stained Glass completely on our own. We recorded it in our home studio that we built. It is a product of our time and labor. Mm. In the past, the other two records, you know, when you're in a studio environment, it's it's about watching the clock to make sure you get done on time. It's also about uh, how much time can you afford to actually book out. So you're kind of a slave to the timing of it, and you get into this place where Maybe you don't have much time to vary up the tones. Maybe you don't have as much time to build a, a thicker arrangement that you really wanted to, simply because you, ha- you have to finish. So that's something that going forward, especially, and the starting point of Stained Glass is that Station is now really able to show you, and it's really able to show you all the different sides of Station that, you know, again, like Pat and I, I can't tell you how many conversations we've had about wanting to show people specific things in our sound but really being unable to do it until we had the time to do it. And now is that time, luckily. So, you know, with future releases, it's a real cognitive focus on making sure that we can really present what we want and not just try to not just try to take the songs and get them into a place where people can hear them. Really give them all the time they deserve to get them out. Yeah, so you mentioned the building of your own home recording studio. Let's talk about that a little bit. So the album progression, you released, and correct me at any point if I'm wrong, but you, you released the EP in 2013, which was called Wire, and that was produced by Michael Wagner, correct? Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay, and that's what kind of garnered interest from a label or distributor, and that allowed you to release self-titled record in 2015, yes? No. no. Um, we've done everything ourselves. So what Wired did was it opened up a fan base for us 
where we knew we could actually make an album and get it to certain people. Okay. The release of album one, especially in the communities that you were talking about, the M3 community, that's what spread us to the point where we were able to comfortably start making new records because we knew that we could. The the transition from Wired to One was very iffy. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, well, so that's the... So just to sort of expand on that, what's to sort of continue the conversation what Chris said, like with Wired, I think what Wired did was before Wired, we had very little, if not any experience playing outside of New York, maybe the Northeast, but like very specifically New York City. And New York City is not exactly a great place for rock and roll, or it certainly was not back then. It's getting a little better now. It's better now, but it was terrible then, yeah. Yeah, so when, like, we didn't really know that we had fans, to be totally honest. Like, we were playing shows, we had people, we did have fans, but a lot of them were more limited to, like, friends or people you could get out to the show, you know. When Wired came out and we started getting a little more attention from like we got we had order like somebody from Japan like contacted us asking for wholesale orders for the first time and we were like, go, you know, like we had no idea. <laughs> and all of a sudden what it did was it kind of like paved the way for us to say, you know what, like we're doing something right. Like we're playing the music that we like and there are people out there that want to consume what we're selling. So it wasn't like the huge push that I would say album one was, but it kind of gave us the glimmer of hope that, yeah, people are out there looking for this type of music to listen to. And so we continue on the path, you know, and, and we're able to, to do it. Cause before then I think our, our vision was more like, Oh, let's, you know, let's try to get, you know, bigger, producer let's try to like you know utilize some industry contacts and shop around the record you know and and we'll be like the darkness or something like that you know because like where nobody's been doing it for a really long time and all of a sudden out and everyone really likes it that i mean that's a that's an interesting point because i think that's part of how the climate has changed so greatly nowadays versus you know the 80s where you had to go through the whole process of you know getting the record deal putting it out pushing the band etc you as an independent can create music release a record and wake up one day and all of a sudden you have fans reaching out to you from japan where that would have never happened back in the 80s right Oh, no, no. Well, way. yeah. And it's also it's also a slightly different way of looking at that expansion, too, is that, you know, because what what Pat said is is 110 percent true. I, you know, I can't tell you, especially in the early days, how many times we showed up somewhere and someone drove five hours to come see us. Wow. Well, yeah. And, you know, at first you think, wow, that's what a great thing. Maybe you should be gracious about it. But Pat and I, because we were just completely dumbfounded by it, our response was always, why? Why would you do that? You know, like that kind of thing, you know? And we didn't really realize that there were people, I don't want to say looking for music like that, that I don't mean it that way, but there weren't people necessarily open. We didn't know there were people open to just, if they found us and liked us, they'd support us. And big part of that was, um, in our early days of playing in New York city, you know, we played to our friends and we had good shows because, you know, you guilt your friends, you guilt your parents, you say, hey, come see me, and and it's a great show, and then you leave. And then you realize, though, that maybe perhaps these are not necessarily fans, they're people who are friends. So when we decided to figure out how to expand, 
we actually talked to uh, the people who own the syndicate. And I remember John Landman said to us, guys, you got to make a record. You've got to make something that people can listen to and, and take with them. That's when we found Michael Wagner. And that was pretty much what got us pushed into the mentality of, okay, we need to record our music. Because I think before then, I mean, Pat, like you and I would very much be focused completely on the live show. I don't think we even thought about recording other than like a demo before yeah, we had that nice. conversation. I mean, because it was always, um, I mean, to be fair too, I feel like when we were talking about recording, like not just a demo, I certainly, and I'm, I mean, correct me, maybe you were as well, but it, we got the, the, the amount of time and money it cost to put out a full record we were like daunted by it. It was like, yeah. oh yeah, we just don't record songs until, you know, a label comes in. Like there's no mm. point because we just like, we'll never be able to afford to put out a full length record, you know? And it was not really until really album one where we were kind of like understanding more what our budget could be and what we could do and the type of music we were able to put out, you know, and just say like, oh yeah, like we can, we can put out music high quality music that's not nearly like the you know half a million dollar budget it used to be and especially now because we have our own studio it's like oh cool we can like we could churn out a song in a day if we wanted to you know yeah a big part of that that mentality comes from pat i think because you know when we made wired the reason it's called wired is because we did it with michael wagner at his studio in nashville mm -hmm. um, called wire world yeah and you know working with michael was it was amazing for a lot of different reasons. Save for, I mean, the fact that his studio is just insane. It's just, it's a, it's a playland for musicians. But Michael's a great guy to work with. He's obviously got the pedigree of rock and roll and metal. So, you know, we were very kind of like just excited to be in his presence, hear stories, really guided us in our early recording lives. But what happened afterwards was, you know, we got the, we got the EP, he mixed it, he mastered it, we put it out. And Pat and I started talking about things about the recording. And Pat had a lot of very specific ideas about his vocals. And for me, I was kind of like, well, if we were supposed to do that, would we have done that? Should we have done that? What do we do? How do we, how do we negotiate between having someone who's legendary guide you one path and right. then you know someone have a different way of thinking? When we got into the studio for album one, because we were in the production chair this time, Pat was able to say, let me try this. Mm -hmm. um, and not that Michael didn't let us try stuff, but there was a much smaller amount of time to try stuff. So when we had more time and Pat was trying things out, we liked it more. And it was like, well, holy shit, maybe we can do this stuff ourselves. And that started us really on the path of, of really kind of crafting what we want out of the records and making sure that we were the driver's seat creatively to get what we wanted. Yeah, it was really hard to argue with a guy who sold 90 million records. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. <laughs> like, I'm not, you know, I'm regardless of one way or another, like, it is our band, it is our music. Sure. So, but, you know, if you're like, I think I should try it this way, and he's like, I sold 90 million records. You should probably yeah. do it the way that I suggest, you know? Yeah, and like, he didn't he didn't say that in a negative way. It was it was a conversation, but, you know, the it, being intimidated by his his prowess is insane, you know? I saw a face that I 
Right. Well, I think there's several different ways to look at it. I think that you guys finally realized, which is seems to be a trend with a lot of artists these days, is they're realizing that there's a lot of money wrapped up in recording. So if I just with technology being what it is today, if I just build my own studio, I can put out music whenever I feel like putting out music. I can write whenever I feel like writing, etc. And I'm my own boss, essentially, right? Because you are your own boss when you own your studio. Yes and no. I mean, it is absolutely our freedom to do what we want, which is great. But the other side of it, too, is that you have to be very, very, very mindful of your intention. You know, one of the things that Emmy brings to the band tremendously is, you know, Emmy mixed the entire last record. Emmy and I engineered the record. Mm -hmm. It is a very, very, very detailed, you got to be very disciplined experience to make a rock record that is as involved as stained glass. Cause there's a lot of stuff going on, especially if you listen to a song like angel, there's a lot of stuff in there. And in order to get what you want out of it, you can't just kind of have this, uh, I don't want to say half-ass, but you can't have this very relaxed approach to it. It has to be very disciplined. And that's something that I think that people have had to develop, whereas back in the day, you really hired someone else to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, So like back in the day when, when a band went into a studio, and obviously home studios weren't as popular because of the cost, but you hear stories of like, you know, bands partying while they're recording mm-hmm. and, you know, um, spending hours upon hours to, to get one line right or whatever. In today's world, if you can't basically have the producer in the room who was there back in the day, you kind of have to grow up fast and say to yourself, well, no, can't party. got to get enough sleep. No, I can't party. I've got to be very mindful of what I'm tracking. And it, it just puts the, the onus on the players and the people who actually run the recording. So we've adapted to that pretty well because it actually suits the kind of people we are because we're very into control, but we're also very, we work together in a very friendly way. So it's pretty easy time spent. I mean, the other part of it too, is that, you know, just to not, not like we're anti-producer or anything like that. Oh, I mean, no. Like for other bands, it's like the producer, like, you know, you get like a Def Leppard situation where like Mutt Lang is literally like a member of Def Leppard effectively. Right. Like, you know, that's, that's one thing. And a lot of bands who are able to find producers that share that vision so tightly, it's like magical because you're finally having an outside opinion, but you also have the same shared vision because of the type of music that we play, it was always kind of hard. It's either you're, you have two extremes. You have either the modern quote unquote producer that like doesn't share the same vision because everything is modern rock, modern, this modern, that, or you have a Michael Wagner type situation, but it's like so old school with thinking that you end up maybe not getting exactly what you want because you're not able to, you're not, it's like, there needs to be that balance. And for us, we were we weren't really able to find one, and so we were like, rather than continuing to look, we were like, let's just do it ourselves. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. I I think there's pros and cons to it. I think obviously it's your vision, it's your creativity that you're trying to capture, and so you know the school of thought would be, well, who knows better than the person that's writing it and creating it. However, I think that it is a slight pitfall in the fact that there needs to be a sounding board. And when I say sounding board, I don't mean your friends, your partners, your uh, the other guys in the band. There needs to be a sounding board of somebody that can come in and with 
proper communication say, listen, I don't really think that this song is up to its potential. Maybe cut out a verse or shorten the course or whatever, whatever it may be, and collaboratively be able to pull the best out of a band, you know? Yeah. Well, you know, we've, I, I totally hear that. One of the, that's one of the things that we've kind of grown into. We very much take criticism from each other very well, but we also are very united in the band. So I think it's like one of those brotherly things where it's like we internally argue. We, you know, we actually don't really fight, but we, you know, we bicker about stuff and we have disagreements. But God help you if it's you against the band, because we will just gang up and like no relenting on that. <laughs> So it's one of those things where it's like it's actually very easy to disagree in the band because there's freedom to do so. Mm-hmm. The one rule that we pretty much maintain is that if there is a real disagreement on a recording that the songwriter has the ultimate say. But I mean, Pat, I can't think of a time when we've ever had to even enact that. You know what I mean? Like we've always gotten to a point where it's just like we'll talk about it to the point where someone either gives up or we just all agree that there's a better place to go with it. You know, so we, we try to yeah. be very critical of each other. Yeah, I, I, that's that's pretty accurate. I think that for the most part, if you know there's a, there's some kind of disagreement with performances, usually what ends up happening, like ninety nine percent of the time, is compromise. Because at the end of the day, like you know, like if Chris has a vocal thing that he wants me to do, and I'm not into it. Even if I do it the way that Chris says it, my performance is not going to be nearly as you know, passionate as what maybe was intended because I just don't have the same vision. Yeah, so, I can't beat you down into something. Yeah, exactly. So it's a disservice to the song almost to be so strict about like, this is exactly what you need to do. And if you deviate it from it, like even slightly, like it's wrong. So we don't really, I mean, it's a basic rule. And, you know, it's we do like, We'll concede to something as opposed to it being like, uh, oh, like it's not everything is a collaborative effort. But, you know, everybody can make their argument pretty mm-hmm. thoroughly. And it just so happens that most of the time we just end up compromising and coming up with something that we all really like as opposed to like it really being a fuck you kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. And if we can't agree, we just have to ask our wives. <laughs> How does the writing process work with you guys? Do you start with a riff? Do you start with a lyric, a melody? Do you two bring something to the band? Does the band, uh, the other guys in the band bring stuff to you? How does that work? It really varies. I mean, um, a lot of times uh, if I'm writing a song, it'll start with the music and the melody. I very rarely write fiddling around. Like I'm not someone who stumbles onto things i usually come to my instrument with intention mm-hmm. so you should see the amount of voice memos i have on my phone and how many things i've written down everywhere it's just that i i come up with ideas and if i like the idea enough i'll develop into a song sometimes it takes three minutes to write a full song sometimes it takes three years yeah you know um a lot of times in the past uh pat and i have kind of had disparate pieces of songs that have kind of melded into one or we've worked off of an experience or an idea So there's really no one process. The only thing that does kind of remain consistent across all of the, uh, pretty much all of the songs we've done is we kind of have this sense of song doctoring where it's like, usually Pat and I specifically will kind of get together and run through songs. And that's a large part of where the pre-production of like, I hear this 
comes out because we always bring songs on an acoustic guitar. Mm-hmm. Very, very, very rarely does anyone really want to bring anything more um, fleshed out than that because, mm-hmm. you know, all of a sudden when you start hearing the other intentions, it, it limits where your brain puts the possibilities. You know, if you hear a bass part and you say to yourself, that's the bass part, well, you're kind of doing the song a disservice if you have an awesome bassist and I'm just playing root notes, you know? So, we keep it really bare bones and then we build it together in the studio. And that's that's one of the reasons why, you know, to your earlier point, how it sounds pretty consistent. It's because Pat and I have a very specific process of looking at the songs and, and fleshing it out. So it's a lot of the Pat Chris sound in there. You know, that's interesting. I've never heard anything explained quite that way. And, and the way that you explained it makes sense to me. I mean, that's a... That's an amazing way to look at things. And I think that's awesome, man. Very good. Very good for you guys. Thank you. (laughs) So touring today is a whole hell of a lot different than it was back in the 80s for most bands, especially rock bands. Uh, Many do the weekend warrior thing. Some people go out and play Friday, Saturday, Sundays. How do you guys approach touring and playing shows in today's climate? The difference between us and I think a lot of other rock bands is it it kind of there's two facets of it i think the first facet is that we're a different type of band that's not necessarily like your average modern rock band you know we've had our peers they'll go out and they'll tour like for three months sleeping in their vans playing shows to five people you know and skipping a meal and and all that kind of stuff and coming back you know and and I'm not saying that that's like a bad thing or anything, but to me, unless you're part of a scene that expects you to do that, like the punk rock scene, you know what I mean? Like if you, especially like the, you know, eighties punk rock or early nineties punk rock too, where, you know, there were, there were kids and fans that would just go out to clubs on Tuesdays because they wanted to hear punk rock music, you know, and they knew they felt like a part of a community. So that's almost kind of what it took in order to be accepted by that scene because you'd have to be like, okay, we're going to go, we're going to play like a hundred dates, you know, in a row. And that's how we'll build up our fan base. Great. For station, that scene, like our fan base and the people that we generally find, you know, support our music, they're not like that in the same way. So if we were to tour, for three months nonstop sleeping in our van, skipping in a meal kind of thing. It wouldn't really help us nearly as much as the way that we tour now, which is very calculated. It's always with intention. So when we go out and we tour, it's with a very specific purpose. It's uh, we have a couple of anchor shows that will help us so that we can support our way to get there and back and not run a risk of getting stranded somewhere. We, base things around like shows where we know the markets that we're trying to hit are extremely populous with station fans, you know, people that want to see us, you know, the fan base that we built up over time, we having a new product as well, you know, because we, if we don't have a new record, we don't have anything to sell, you know, it's still great to go out on tour, but it's a very different intention than when we have something new, you know, so Yeah. And station is very, very, very lucky that we have the freedom to have that conversation because our fans support us tremendously. And, you know, like what Pat was saying about, you know, the difference between touring on a new record and touring because we want to tour. 
um, we can have that conversation. We are very lucky that even though there's really not, um, you know, the difference of, of a scene, like he was saying, you know, uh, it's very hard to just show up to a place where there's a style of music that people are specifically coming to hear anymore because there's so much diversity. So what we rely on is the word of mouth to get new people to shows based on the live experience. And then, you know, honestly, Steve, people like you who have us on, help us promote the band. You know, we're talking about the band. Hopefully someone will hear this and say, I need to check these guys out. And then they're all they're at a show all of a sudden. So it's a, it's a very different way of building a fan base. I think that, you know, if times were different and you could show up on a Tuesday night at a place where people were just waiting to hear a new rock band. I think that our approach would be very different, but because of just the world we live in, it just it can't be that for us anyway at our level. Those are all extremely valid points, and that brings me to a question that I wanted to ask you guys as a young band. What do you view as the most important thing these days to a rock band? Because it used to be getting an album, putting out an album, but now is it streams? Is it album sales? We know it's not album sales. Is it streams? It's awareness. Yes. So it's likes and followings and, and turnout at a concert and merch sales. What is it to you guys? It's awareness. It's branding. It's, it's making it, it's making it so that people, you know, someone's mentions station, offhandedly and someone else goes oh yeah i know those guys it's about being able to do that the mechanism in which to do it can vary on importance depending on your fan base but the good news is that there's a lot of there's a lot of distinction like like a lot of fans prefer streaming a lot of fans still buy records you know a lot of fans will go to live shows so it was a little bit more one track minds you know years ago but now it's about like you have to hit everything kind of equally. We have to make sure that, you know, our streaming is, you know, our streaming game is strong and we have to make sure that our social media presence is strong. We have to make sure our live show is strong and our album sales are strong. It's there's different focuses depending on what will give you the best return on your investment. But at the same time, a, a fan is equally as important to me if they buy like our entire physical record collection or they, put us on their Spotify playlist because yeah, both yeah. situations that fan is going to have that awareness of what we're doing and continue to support us. So yeah, that's right. That's the most important thing is their interest. It, it, you know, using any kind of metric as saying that that's the most important reason someone is a fan is, is just, it's poison. You know, early on Pat and I had so many conversations with, I'm doing air quotes, professionals <laughs> that told us that you know bands can't have a career without a million facebook likes bands can't have a career without you know however many albums sold or downloads i mean we're always growing but we're still here and had we listened to that advice we wouldn't be here so i am very strongly opposed to saying that any one thing is important the, the most important thing is to put out something that you're behind and you believe in and connect with people. And as long as it's going to continue to connect with people, and as long as people are going to feel like something is important enough to give their attention to, that's all that matters. You know, the rest is, the rest will come and go. Yeah. I think if you have goals as a band, as a unit, and you're, um, 
uh, I'll use air quotes too, which you can't see, but as long as you're moving the sticks forward, so football mm-hmm. reference, as long as you're moving those sticks forward and growing, then who the hell cares? I mean, it doesn't matter whether you got a million streams or a million Facebook likes. Sure, that stuff would be great. and Maybe you get there someday, but as long as it's moving forward. Uh, that's how I, that's how I look at the, the growth of the podcast as am I getting more streams and are more people talking about the show every year? And the answer is yes. Yeah. And I mean, I think that that's the problem with the industry nest, uh, nowadays is when I, when MySpace came out and all of a sudden there was a very quote unquote distinct way of measuring the success of a band through a metric, like that little number next to how many friends you have. I think that that's kind of what ruined the industry because instead of an A&R guy going out to a show and saying, oh my gosh, this band and this music is great. The first conversation that they have is, well, how many likes do they have or how many streams do they have? And that's a completely arbitrary metric, especially nowadays, because you can inflate those numbers by paying for it. You know, you can literally like there are services where it's like, you know, pay us a hundred bucks and you get a million likes on Facebook. They're all fake. But at the same time, that kind of proves my point where the, the number and the metric is meaningless at this point because it's so arbitrary and it's so inflated and and there's nothing about it that necessarily can speak to what the success of a band will be. There's no correlation between if a band has so many likes, then they're going to give me this amount of return on my investment. I'm not saying it's the worst thing in the world, but I'm saying that to have that be like the first part of a conversation in the meeting room at a lot of labels is ruined the industry.
clip, and I'm going to take a minute to help you guys out right here. To the listeners that are listening to this interview right now, please go out to Facebook and like Station's Facebook page. Please like Growing Up Rock Podcast Facebook page. We appreciate all the likes we can get. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I I came from the Gene Simmons School of uh, Marketing, by the way. There you go. Oh, yeah. I was so. As big as Coca-Cola. Yeah. Look at all those trademark applications. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's that's great information. The the uh, the conversation we're having here is really insightful for me because it really is a totally different world nowadays than it was. This podcast exists to fly the flag for rock and roll because there are not only classic bands out there that are struggling, but a lot of great new bands that are struggling on how to get the word out. And we're here because radio, we don't feel like radio is really doing any bands, any hard rock bands, any favors. They're playing the same three or four songs by ACDC that they were playing back in the eighties. And, uh, uh, we just don't believe in that. So that's why we're here. Oh, yeah, we appreciate that. So what's next for you guys? M3, Rocklahoma, is there maybe a Monsters of Rock cruise uh, in the future for you guys? Do you know something we don't? <laughs> <laughs> I do not, other than I will be on the boat in a few weeks. We're actually in the studio right now, uh, working on a new album. So um, we're doing that. And that is going to take us pretty much through the end of February when we start playing live again. And, uh, you know, we've got several shows. We're going to be playing with Kicks in Baltimore for a couple of nights. We're going to be doing a show in New York. Uh, we'll be doing a bunch of one-offs and probably like three-day mini trips. Um, and then in the fall, uh, you can expect another much larger tour than we did last November. And um, we'll get back out on the road to do like a proper tour rather than just uh, spot markets. Are you skipping the summer altogether? Not skipping it. It's just we're we're we, we're doing other things yeah. as we perhaps release another record. Okay. Yeah, I. The other thing too. Um, the other thing too. So on. We have to we have to plug this. We're releasing uh, stained glass on vinyl. Okay, taking part That's right. in the vinyl market. All right, good. Uh, so when does that happen? It's uh being it's uh, submitted. It's uh. It's being printed now. Um, it's so, the elves are making the vinyl. The elves are making the vinyl. So we're we're pretty much at a point where um, it's it's up to the gods now, the vinyl gods, because <laughs> uh, vi- you know vinyl. The the downside of vinyl is um, you know I could tell you with CDs like what day it'll be available because it's so calculated, you know. And there's like oh yeah, I place the order on this day and it will 100% be done on this day. With vinyl, it's it'll be done between four to sixteen weeks. Yeah. <laughs> Yep. Uh, let me ask this question. This is probably uh, speculation on my part, but can you make a piece of vinyl that looks like stained glass? Okay, that is a topic of conversation that has been going on for weeks now. And the answer is, I don't know, because we've been trying, we, we had this, we had this whole idea about originally being like, okay, you know, it makes a lot of sense to try to play on the stained glass. Yeah motif yep and pat is pat is like you know as we run our business pat is the the guy who gets like the logistics done you Mm -hmm. know so pat is the one who's really behind the scenes you know organizing the actual creation of everything 
I would help you if you ever try to get our music on Spotify, Chris. <laughs> I, yeah, I am not the person. Like, if I had a VCR, I'd be blinking 12. Like, <laughs> it is, I am not that guy. Okay. So, you know, that is a strength of Pat. And I'm reasonably sure that I've actually got seen gray hairs pop up on his head as we've had this conversation, <laughs> trying to figure out how to do this. So the first pressing, which will be a limited pressing, is going to be an actual, like, black disc you know like like traditional vinyl yeah normal who okay. knows what will happen after that though because i intend to drive him crazy as we try to figure this out still yeah because pat that's that's a huge marketing miss if you don't find a way to do that <laughs> oh it's not his it's not his fault he hasn't not found a way we haven't found a way because it's just uh, it, it's impossible to figure out how to do this the other thing too, just to like pair it off of that is this is our first time we've ever printed vinyl. So yeah. to be totally honest, we could sell out the first day or we could end up with like a few hundred records in our basement as I really hope my mom likes vinyl. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I understand completely. I mean, it's, it's hit or miss. And I personally am not a vinyl collector, but I got lots and lots of friends that are. And, you know, they always they always post these pictures to Facebook, you know, listening to this today. And, you know, the vinyl, the vinyl is becoming quite pretty in in its um, creativity. You know, I've seen all kinds of marble patterns and very cool looking uh, stuff. So I think it's it's a pretty cool thing. I'm just not a collector. And and that's good because I can still pay the mortgage on my house, which is a good thing. Well, that's that's another side of it, too, is, um, you know, in the spirit of, of the band literally doing everything ourselves, one of the things that the new album has lent itself to is it's the length of an LP. Mm -hmm. So, like, trying to get the original album, the first album on an LP, we'd have to print like three. <laughs> and same thing with More Than the Moon. It, it's a it's a, actually a relatively long album. So Stained Glass is, a, is not short, but it's definitely shorter than the previous releases, and it actually complements the length of an LP. So that was really the first thing that set us into motion, because it's not a new idea for us to want vinyl. It's just a more practical way of looking at it. Right, but then you can have the kick-ass gatefold. <laughs> That's true. I think, I think what will probably end up happening, being totally truthful, is we'll release this on vinyl, and we'll kind of see what happens. You know, we're going to see what people want, um, how well it does. And then if there's demand for it in a way, like now we all of a sudden have a metric in which to say, oh, okay. So like last record we did, we sold this amount of vinyl, you know, or this or that, like maybe this next record. Cause at the end of the day, like it does cost more to do like a gatefold or like, you know, colored vinyl and stuff like that. And it's really cool. We love it. But like, I'd rather make one for me than if no one else is going to buy it, you know? Yeah. So we have I to be very mindful yeah. of that doing everything ourselves. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Well, so is there anything else that, uh, that we need to tell the listeners about? Just if you want to uh, listen to our music, you check us out on Facebook station NYC, or you can go to our website stationband.com that has all the lists. Uh, the links and stuff to Spotify, Facebook, Twitter, to our Bandcamp page where you can buy our CD and soon vinyl. So yeah, stationband.com. Another really important part of it is um, people listen. So if you want to hear Station on your radio station, call the radio station and tell them that because everybody listens. And when enough people do that, Station starts getting played. And that's the thing that really helps us tremendously. 
Yeah, and we we can put all the links to uh, where you can get a hold of the band in our show notes and all that stuff. I got to ask this question. What's in the name? So Station, where does that come from? Who came up with the name? And what, what are you guys take on the, the name Station? So Station is actually a reference from Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. Okay. Um, it's uh, the most intelligent mind in the universe was two little creatures that combined to become one creature named Station. It's actually kind of funny. So like what ended up happening is, you know, we, me and Chris met, you know, we were trying to figure out, you know, with all of us together at the time, uh, first couple rounds of, of people. All right. What are we going to name the band? And, yeah. And also running a band way easier than naming a band. <laughs> oh, yeah. Because the other thing, too, like what's what's kind of hilarious and also a modern day problem is that, you know, you, you don't want to you want to take a unique name, you know, you don't want to accidentally steal a band. And in the world of MySpace and Facebook and all that, like every band is called something. That's why band names turned into sentences, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. because at least like, like they're, you know, it's like poison. There are other bands called poison, but like poison, as we know it, they were the, the biggest and they had plausible deniability that there were no other bands called poison yeah. at the time that they formed for us. Like, the argument could be like, well, you know, you Googled, you know, whatever. I remember I Googled some really obscure name that I came up with and there was a band called it. And I was like, you got to be shitting me. Like, this is ridiculous. Like, I couldn't like I'm, I did it as a joke. Like, you know, this isn't even like what I really want the band to be called. But there's already a band called it. But funny enough, there was no other band called Station. Which is amazing because it literally is an SEO nightmare when you type in Station all kinds of stuff comes up because there the word station is a lot of things and especially synonymous with music. Oh yeah, and if you try to put in NYC, you end up getting the, you know, the subway transit system. Yeah. So, like station NYC, it'll take you to like Metro North or something. <laughs> <laughs> I found that interesting. Have are you guys uh, fans of South Park at all? Yes. Yeah. I am. Yeah, so there's a there's a whole episode where they're trying to come up an, with a name for their company, and they're going through the most ridiculous, outlandish names for a thing, and they finally settle on uh, the Washington Redskins <laughs> because they were going through <laughs> some sort of publishing issue. So that's what they they finally uh, uh, settled on. But it's a hilarious episode. How are we supposed to name our startup company if every name is already taken? I told you, you just have to be really original with your company name. There's a lot of startup companies these days. Furry balls plopped menacingly on the table, Incorporated. That's available. Congratulations. <laughs> That's what reminded me of it. So, well, guys, I appreciate your time. It's been a pleasure. Chris, Patrick, make sure you get out there and check out Station Music. Type in Station Band into Google and you'll find it. I'll also put all the links to the show notes, but get out there and support kick-ass rock and roll like these guys. Cool, man. Thank you. Thank you. Get ready to shuffle, rattle, and roll. Play us out, boys.
Please make sure you subscribe to our podcast, Growing Up Rock, and leave us a review on iTunes. Give us a like and leave us a comment on Facebook at Growing Up Rock. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.